You know, if you're, if you're visiting with us for the first time, we just want to say thank you so much for coming to, to spend some time with us this morning and worship the, the Lord together. I feel a, um, a, a sort of a weightiness this morning, and I feel like, man, wasn't that, wasn't that a good word that Forrest Brain just brought right here just at the beginning of service? And I really feel like the Lord was using him to share that because, you know, a lot of times, and I don't know if it's just because we're underprepared or because we like to see what the Spirit will do, but we don't always share with each other what we're going to say or what we're going to do. And, and so often I find that even in the prayer room this morning, uh, Tabitha was giving God, uh, God was giving her some things to share that just sort of went right in line with what I felt like the Lord is leading me into. And so this, this morning we're going to start a new sermon series called The War on Love. And whatever you might think, whatever preconceived notions you have, I'd say that this sermon will be different than that. Uh, because specifically, I'm going to preach about a subject this morning that as soon as you hear it, you're going to have a little bit of a, a, a little bit, you might feel a certain way about it. It kind of provokes a certain response all the time. But I want to speak specifically about the wrath of God. Okay, and, 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 and as soon as you hear that, you're like, oh no, baby, we picked the wrong church to come to this morning. We shouldn't have come here this morning. But, but trust me, just hear me out. Let's go through this together. I'm going to go through a lot of scripture. It's going to be kind of a different service, uh, sermon, message. But just hang with me, follow with me, and I promise you by the end of it, I think that it's going to do all of us a lot of good. Amen? All right, so I'm going to read first from 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. And then I will be flipping over to Romans 1, and I'll spend the rest of my time uh, pretty much in Romans 1 for the most part. Okay, 1 John 4, verse 16 through 18 says, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment or punishment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Let's pray together. Father, we just, we sense your presence this morning, Lord. And God, I sense just the weightiness of, of what I feel like that you want to say this morning. And God, I know that I'm, I'm inadequate. I don't have the, the ability to, to, to deliver this message the way that I should, but we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to be here, to be present with us this morning, to give me the words to speak, God, and to give us ears to hear and hearts to receive, God, what you are saying. Lord, we trust in you, we believe in you, God, and we thank you for your word and for your power to transform our lives and make us more like Jesus every day. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we know, and most people know, that God is love. I, and I think that statement, honestly, if you read throughout Scripture, that statement sort of sums up the nature of God all in one, one, one quick three-word sentence. God is love. And we know that. But in our generation, I think it's often confused because we use the word love to describe how we feel about anything from Jesus to cigarettes. Amen. I mean, we really do. We use the word love for everything. And man, it is one of the most confused words in our generation and in our culture. And oftentimes, we have no idea what love is. And, and, and the world is in a, in a particular condition today based on even what Forrest said, that we get in this place where, man, things are going crazy. And I would, be, I would beg to argue the fact that the reason the world is in the condition it is in today is because everybody's definition of love is actually different. And how you define love will determine the course of your life. What you think love is will determine your character. It will deter determine your faithfulness and your commitment to things that you think are important or non-important. It will determine your sexuality. It will determine all of the things in your life. And ultimately, it will set the course of your life based upon what you love. And what you love will form you. And what you decide, when you decide what love is, it'll shape you and form you. But see, in our generation, in our culture, we, we have lost a biblical definition of love. And pretty much what we believe love is in our generation and in our culture is whatever feels good to you at the moment. There was, so most people say we live in what's called a postmodern society. And they say the mantra of the postmodern society is Sheryl Crow's song, If It Makes You Happy, It Can't Be That Bad. Right? 
And that's pretty much, that's pretty much the, the, the mantra of our culture and our generation is if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. If it makes you happy, ultimately, that's what love is. And if it makes you feel good in the moment, then that's how you define love. And guess what? Everybody gets to define what love is for their own lives. You get to figure out what love is for your own life. You, have to, you get to d define for yourself what's love, what's not love. And we get extremely confused in this world. And now, even in our, in our political kind of atmosphere, and even in the church, it becomes, it becomes almost like this. It's almost like you're no longer a loving person unless you affirm every single person for doing whatever they choose to do. No matter how detrimental it is, no matter how harmful it is to their lives, you're no longer loving unless you say, that's good, we love you, just go on doing whatever you want to do and that's fine. And, and that, that, that's really what it's come to in our society and in our generation. And this is very difficult for the church to navigate because the church knows and understands that above all things, we are here to love the world. We are here above all things to represent the love of God to the world and to represent his truth to the world and to love all people regardless of the situation and the condition that they are in. But then when they're in certain situations and conditions, if we don't affirm them in those situations and conditions, well, we're no longer loving. So, and y'all know just as much as I do, I'm sitting there studying for this message. I'm thinking, Lord, this is one of the most difficult topics to even begin to discuss. And we'll get into it a little bit more. But here, here, here's the issue. You see that it says God is love, and it says perfect love casts out fear. And he says there is no fear in love because this perfect love casts out fear. And he says because fear involves punishment. And he says this love in you, it will give you a place where you have boldness in the day of judgment. And here's what God is doing. If you read throughout the scripture, he's taking us on a journey of love. And this is why in the Old Testament it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Notice it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The same way that a child needs to have a healthy fear of his parent is the same way that we need to have a healthy, reverent fear and respect of God, knowing that he is in control and what he says is right and we're not right. As much as we think we may be right, God ultimately is right. And we have to have a healthy, reverent awe of God, and that's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but that's when we are a child. When we're a child, we have to have a healthy fear of our parents, but when we grow up and become an adult, we realize that everything our parents told us and said to us was ultimately because they loved us, and now we're no longer afraid of them because we see that everything they did was because of love. And now, rather than being afraid of them and feeling obligated to do what's right because we're afraid of them, now we love them and we want to do what's right because we realize what love is. And he says, you reach a place in your Christian journey where all of a sudden, perfect love, the, the love that God loves you with and the love that you love him with in return, you no longer have a fear of God because you are obedient to him because you love him. Amen? Perfect love casts out all fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning, but it is not the end. Love is the end, and love never fails. Amen? So we're going to start there. We're going to begin with that. But before we get into this, this is why when you understand this journey of our lives, you have to begin to understand the wrath of God. Because even when I'm discussing the love of God with people, they get so confused about it. And they've even come and said to me, they said, what's God's take on this? And I say, well, this is God's take on this. This is how he views it. And they say, well, that's not love. And I said, based on what definition? We need to define that. And they said, well, what about the wrath of God? What about the wrath of God? That can't be love. And I'm going to argue that it is love. Okay. That's going to be what, what, what I'm going to say right here. So let's turn to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to go verse by verse. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And we're going to read through this verse by verse and kind of break it down. And I'm going to read several verses. Y'all excited yet? Oh, yeah. 118. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, here's what he's saying. Paul is actually beginning to... He, he's not just talking about certain individuals. He is talking about the condition of the entire world and all of humanity. And he says this. He says, the wrath of God... And if you read it in the Greek language, it's saying it's now being revealed. It's being revealed right here among us. If you look around, he says, I'm going to show you how the wrath of God is actually being revealed in, in the right here and the right now. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed against ungodliness, right? Against unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, he's saying it's revealed from heaven for this purpose. Humanity was given a mandate. 
And that was they were created in the image of God, and so they were to express God's love on earth. And if they expressed God's love on earth, what would happen is earth would become a reflection of heaven. But guess what? We, forfe we forfeited that mandate. We rebelled against God, and all of a su sudden, we begin to see the wrath of God rather than heaven on earth. We begin to see what, what looks more like hell than looks like heaven because we rebelled against our own calling of God. And here's what he says. Here, here's what he says. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed for this purpose. He says, there are men, it's being revealed against this ungodliness and this unrighteousness, against men who suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness. So here's what he's saying. He's saying that the truth comes to us, and this is all of us. At first, when the truth comes to us, Rather than dealing with the truth and allowing the truth to speak to us, because it does not fit in our mind or it does not agree with who we say that we are, we push it down and we say, I don't want to hear that. I would rather hold on to my unrighteousness than be, been, than be somebody tell me that I'm wrong and this isn't right. I love darkness rather than light. So you can tell me that God loves me and you can tell me all these things, but as soon as you tell me that this is wrong in my life, I would prefer to hold on to my unrighteousness and push the truth out of my way so I don't have to deal with it. And he says, this is why the wrath of God is being revealed because people are doing this. They're suppressing the truth. In, in verse 19 and 20, it says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now here's what he's saying. He says, all men are, are, are without excuse now. And he says, because whether you can say you're an atheist all you want to, you can say you don't believe in God all you want to, but he's saying that in the human heart, God has set eternity in every man's heart. And at the end of the day, the reason people become atheists is because on a base level, they do not want to be held accountable for their lives, and they would rather suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And he says, but when it comes right down to it, he says that innately in every human heart is this knowledge that there is a God. And he says, here's how you know. All you got to do is look a human in the eyeball and see that they can see out of that eye. He says, you see intelligent design. You can see the stars in the heaven. You see the trees and the wind blowing and and breath coming into our lungs and going out and us having emotions and feelings and he says you know based on looking at intelligent design there had to be an intelligent designer there is a creator out there somewhere matter of fact even if you begin to study throughout history everybody in the world throughout history was grasping after this God only until recently really were people are people becoming more and more atheists since the 1700s and 1800s in the Enlightenment and what was called the modern period because everybody got so daggone smart they just said, well, we're smarter than God now. And some dude named Nietzsche said, well, God's dead. And they said, well, and, and, and you know, when, when he said that, he was not actually saying it triumphantly. He was saying God is dead and we have killed him because we've ultimately built up a system that says we don't have any need for you any longer. Now, he didn't believe in God, but he realized that it could be detrimental to humanity because they no longer believed in him. Now, that's crazy, isn't it? Now, he realized that it was going to be harmful because they got to that point. So they push him out, and, and, and they push God out, and he says, but they haven't, they, no longer do they have any excuse. Even, even when you go even back further, before Jesus, you have the Greeks, these philosophers, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, these guys. They are, they are seeking after the truth, and in the end, they all three in different time periods come up with the idea, and they come up with the conclusion that there is one God. Even they, without, without any history or background of a religion anywhere around them that said there was one God, they all concluded in their search for wisdom and knowledge and understanding that there had to be one God. They all knew it. Why? Because God had put it inside of them. And anybody who will search with an honest heart has to come to the conclusion that, man, there is a God out there. I may not know him, but I realize somewhere that he's out there. And he says, so they're without excuse. And you say, well, you know, not everybody hears the gospel, though, Clay. Well, in Romans 2, Paul is going to say that everybody has some measure of light and revelation that is given to them, and they have to respond to that measure of light and revelation. When you talk about saints in the Old Testament, none of them had heard the gospel, but they were given a measure of light, a measure of revelation of who God is, and how they put their faith and responded to God in that situation is how ultimately they will be judged. But see, you and I, we're held to a higher standard. Why? Because we have heard the gospel. We've, been, we've had the decision to whether or not we're going to accept Jesus or we're going to reject him, and that actually holds us to a higher standard. 
that actually holds us to a, to a greater place and a greater standard. But here's what he says in, in verse 21 through 23. He says, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their hearts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And here's what he's saying. He's saying they knew God. Deep down they knew there was a God, but they refused to worship him. And this, this right here is the root of all sin. The root of every sin that a person will commit right down to unforgiveness or hatred or, or, or wrath or, or anger or lust, the root of all sin is that we refuse to worship God. That's the root of every sin. And he says, they refused to worship him, and neither were they thankful. Matter of fact, they became unthankful. They became entitled. They became proud. And he said, what they did now because they were pushing God out is they started making images of other gods, and ultimately those image lo images looked a lot like themselves. They made images that, ma that looked like themselves because they were worshiping themselves. And he said, matter of fact, it got so bad that now they're not even making images of humans. They started making images of animals and worshiping animals. That the human condition got so bad. I went to India one time, and they, they have all kinds of these images in these idols. And I went to one particular place where they were baptizing people in the river, and they weren't baptizing them for Christian purposes. They believed that they had to wash themselves every day to get clean. And they go down to the river every day to get clean from, from their sin or their filthiness. I don't know what they were worshiping, but just above the river was this big tree with a massive rat at the bottom of this tree. And there were people bowing down worshiping this rat. You say, well, 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 man, I mean, that's, that's just awful. Good thing we ain't like that here in America. We worship a lot of things here in America that are just as bad as a rat. The lust, the, 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 the I mean, there, there are so many things in America that are, that, that are just as bad. They're different, but they're equally as evil and equally as destructive. See, there is one image that God has given us to worship, and he says that image is revealed in Jesus Christ. He is the express image of the invisible God. And that's why he said, don't make any images, because if you make any images, you'll make me look like you, and I don't look anything like you. I look like Jesus Christ. That's the image of God. That's what God looks like. And he says in verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness. Now notice this language, because you're going to see this about three times. He says, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their own bodies among themselves. He says, basically, I'm giving you up exactly to what you desire. God's wrath starts to become the fact that he gives you over to it. That he's saying, here I am, I'm God, I've got the way of life, I've got the truth, I've got everything you could ever need. And we say, no, God, that's good. I'd like to suppress that truth. I'd like to hang on to my unrighteousness. And what he does in his wrath is say, okay. He says, okay, I'll give you over to it. He gives you exactly what you desire. He gives you exactly what you want. And that is how his wrath is beginning to be revealed. And then it says in verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creator, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. So he says, he gave, the, he gave us up to what we wanted to do. And then what we did was we exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And the truth is that God designed this world a particular way and he knows how it should function. He knows how it should operate. But we exchanged that truth of him being Lord of all creation for the lie that somehow we are smarter than God. Now, nobody in this building and probably many, many buildings outside of this building would say, man, I'm smarter than God. Nobody would come out and say that, but every day we make decisions and we choose to live our lives in ways that we're saying, God, I know you say this about this situation, but that don't fit for my life. I'm choosing this because somehow I think I know better than you. We trade the truth of God for the lie. The lie is the same lie that, that Satan gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that you can be as God's knowing good and evil. You can become your own God, and you can choose what's good, and you can choose what's evil. And we all bought into that lie. You ever bought into that lie? I've bought into it. I was my own God for about 21 years, and I decided what was good, and I decided what was evil. And what was good to me, if you thought it was evil, you were wrong, and I would fight you over it. And what was evil... Man, that's bad, that's evil, I don't care what you say, that's wrong. And this is the world we live in today, man. 
We got, we got some groups of people scattered all abroad, and everybody's got a different, different definition of what's good and what's evil. And that's what's causing us to fight. That's what's bringing this distinction. And there's only, there's only one thing that can ground all humanity. Humanity will never, ever come to agreement on these issues. You can politicize and have political debates and watch the Fox News channel and all these things all you want, and none of those things will ever bring humanity into agreement. Only people will come into agreement when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He knows the truth, that He is the truth. That he is the way, that he is the life. And until that happens, you can debate and argue, but until everyone submits their lives to him, man, we're going to be at war with one another. And there is going to be a war on love the entire time, trying to destroy it. Satan is after love and our understanding of what love truly is. He says he gave them up. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And then they begin to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And he says what ends up happening then is people no longer want to worship God. Matter of fact, they just want the stuff that he can give them. Now what's crazy about this is this has begun to happen in the church, especially in America, is that even when we worship God, it's not because we want God. It's because we want him to give us something. It's because we want more stuff. It's because we want more things. And he says, all of a sudden, this worship gets inverted. And look, it's not that God will not bless us. He absolutely will bless his people. He will give his people things. But when those things take precedence over the worship of God, all of a sudden, there's a breakdown that begins to happen. And in verse 26 and 27, it says, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what, what is against nature. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts for one another, Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Now, this is a difficult set of scriptures here, especially. You know, actually in Canada right now, if you read those scriptures, it's considered a hate crime. So, and that's, I, that's where America is headed. And I need, and, and man, this is, this is a difficult subject to, to preach about, to talk about. Because here's what I'll say is that most people totally avoid this subject altogether now in the church. And, here, and here's what I want to say, too, is, is because, because when you read these scriptures, it's, it becomes abundantly clear. The elephant in the room is, well, he's talking about homosexuality. And here's what I want to say about the church, is that the church for many, many years has used homosexuality as a scapegoat to say, well, those people are sinners, and we're not. And what I want to argue is that human sexuality, we're confused at a level even in the church that is beyond anything I have ever seen. It's not just about homosexuals. It's, not, it's about men who commit adultery. It's about people who are addicted to pornography constantly. It's about the fact that in our churches, we have a very difficult time raising our children to believe in the sacredness of marriage and raising our children to believe that you're to have sex with one individual your entire life. We can't even convince our own Christian children of this truth. And who are we to stand in judgment against those outside? My point being is, is that sexuality is confused on a broad spectrum. And we cannot, and this is, where I, this is where I sense and I feel God's compassion more than anything in the world. Because what you're, what you're seeing is God's wrath is being revealed in the world. And, is, and, and, and you'll see as I, as I explain this, that the way his wrath is revealed is because we are seeing all of this sin. It's not his punishment directly against the sin. He's saying the sin that is coming out in the world is the punishment in itself. He's saying, you want to know what, how my wrath is being revealed? He's saying, you all turned against me and I gave you over to it and now all of this crazy stuff is happening. It's me handing you over to this crazy stuff. It's letting you experience the weight of the consequences when you turn and you rebel against me. And it's difficult because, you know, I sat down with so many people throughout a week and, and, and I'm talking about people that are Christians, people that are non-Christians, and I've had the privilege to sit down with so many different people that God loves who, who, are, who are dealing with homosexuality, some of them deeply, deeply struggling with it, who are dealing with, man, I've got, a, I've got an issue with pornography that I just cannot qu quit, and they're, they're, they're married individuals, maybe they're unmarried, they're young people, but I'm telling you, everybody that comes to me, and I, and I would venture to say that every human being on the planet apart from Christ is struggling with their own sexuality. Because nobody, it, it, and it is one of the sins that is dominating our world today. And when people become Christians, the, th the one thing that they don't want to let go of, like if, you, if we, we, we deal with people who are, who are dealing with drug addiction, and what I come to find is, is they want rid of the drug addiction, but they do not want to give up their sexual sin. 
Nobody wants to deal with that aspect of it. And God is saying, man, the fabric of our society is bound and held together by the, by the family, by the man and the woman that have, made, that have covenanted with one another. Sex is a gift, man, but sex does not define your life. You're not just sex. I told my wife, I said, when I gave my life to Jesus, but I was so addicted and had su such sexual problems and addictions that when it came down to it and God set me free, I told God, I said, you know what? I, I will give up all sexuality. I'll do like Jesus said and be a eunuch if I have to, to serve God. Because no matter what my body tells me I want, my body is not my Lord. My body is not my Lord. And so, so when I sat down with somebody who's struggling with homosexuality, I say, I can relate to you. And it's not because I struggled with homosexuality, but it's because I struggled with the same base desires and sicknesses that do not fall into the same love category that God says this is how it works out. So I, I, we can relate to them as Christians. And when I, when I think about this, one thing Christians can never do, and I'm telling you, I know that, and this is difficult, but this is why I'm addressing this. I don't know who, who struggles with any, whatever particular thing it is, but one thing we can never do is get to the point where, where people who are struggling with homosexuality or even those who have identified as homosexuals feel like they cannot come and be among us and be loved. We can never get to that point. And just because this scripture says this does not mean that God does not love them. He loves them. And I'm telling you, I, when I look at these people and I talk to them and I see their faces, I sense the love of God more for them than I do for you all. And it's not that he loves them more, but man, it's just that he, he's, he, he, he has such compassion. He has such compassion. When I, when I think about, even today, in today's world, that we, we've got in, 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 in our, our government right now, people, this abortion issue is such a big deal. And women, women and, are, are, are so confused that they think it's a good, I mean, they're convincing women that it's a good idea to abort their child even up to nine months. And we know this is not the heart of God. And you know what? We could go out and pick it and do all kinds of things and holler at women. But man, God has compassion on those women that are confused. He loves those women. And he wants to bring these people out of the darkness. Even the people, the legislators that are signing those bills, man, that is, that is wickedness in its highest degree. I didn't even plan on talking about some of this stuff. But God still loves those people. And as Christians, we are to carry not only the truth of God, but the compassion of God, the love of God to bring the truth, of, the truth to these people and bring them out of that darkness. Man, and that is a difficult thing in our world. And what I'm telling you, though, is there's a middle line. You don't speak, because what, would it, what good would it do if we, told, if we got up and preached sermons about how wrong everything was, but we never reached out to one person that was in those wrong situations? Do no good. We just sit over here in our circle telling them what everybody else is wrong without helping anybody. You can't live that way. But the other way that you can't live is just say, everything goes, God loves you, don't worry about it. And right now in our world, it's either one or the other. People are doing a very poor job. Churches are doing a very poor job. For the most part in America, most churches are, are going the other route and saying, you know what, our goal is to grow a church. Our, our goal is, we want to grow this church, but it ain't our goal. It's not our goal. Our goal is to glorify God. And if we, as long as we're glorifying God the best way that we know how, and we fall short of it very often, but as long as we're glorifying God and we're standing for his truth, man, we praise God when he gives us growth and we see people come into that truth, we see people come into the loving knowledge of their Savior, Jesus Christ, man, then we praise God. But it would be easy to slip into this, this current in our generation where all of a sudden you just say, you know what, we just need to love everybody, everything goes, and whenever we preach, definitely ain't going to preach on Romans 1. Somebody amen me this morning. I'm just trying to be real this morning. He says, so God gave them up to vile passions. God gave them, and, and then he says, so, so this is the second time God gave them up. And then in verse 28, and even as they did not like re to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. So the third time, again, God gave them over to a debased mind. And a debased mind is when finally, because you don't want God in your knowledge, you don't want to think about God, you don't want to think about the truth of God, all of a sudden you just, you just shut it out. And he says, okay, if you don't want me in your knowledge and in your mind, then I'm giving your mind over to that. And you know what happens? It's a debased mind where all of a sudden you can no longer discern truth from error right from wrong, and this is why in our government and in our situation and in people's lives, they have no idea. They call good things evil and evil things good. 
They have a debased mind. Now, 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 now in, 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 in the church history, a lot of people have said, well, you get turned over to a reprobate mind, you can't repent. That's the farthest thing from the truth. He's saying that humanity as a whole had a debased and a reprobate mind. That you had a debased and a reprobate mind. Before you came to Jesus, your mind was not very good at judging between good and evil. And even once you came to him, you're still wrestling with it, aren't you? See, this is not, I'm telling you, this is not about, well, those group of people, but we're okay. This is all of humanity apart from Christ. So here's what we're dealing with. Verse 29 through 32, let me read through this really quickly. It says, he gave them over. Now, because God gives them over, here's what begins to manifest. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now that is the longest list of vice in the New Testament. And here's the point that he's making. Because if you read the book of Romans, he's talking about the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. And what he's coming to the conclusion of is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's just not one group of people. It's all that have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all need this salvation that is in Jesus Christ. And he says, but here's what's happened is that everybody in humanity, they've turned against God. They've pushed them out of, his, out of their minds. And because they've went in an alternate direction away from God, down away from God, he says, here's, here's the wrath of God being revealed. He says, you start seeing all this stuff coming out of a human being because they're no longer worshiping God. They're no longer filled with the Spirit of God. They no longer have God in their lives. And because they don't have God in their lives, there's a fundamental breakdown. And when that happens, you can expect sexual immorality. You can expect hatred. You can expect children not being obedient to their parents. You can expect all these things because you're not connected to the life source. There's a vacuum. There's a black hole in people's hearts and minds because they don't know God. And he's saying this is what's beginning to happen to them because of that. See, one of the things in talking about challenges and talking about God, though, is that we're talking about this ultimate transcendent being. And I'm going to talk about the wrath of God now. You ready? I already have a little bit, but I'm going to get into it a little bit more. Y'all ready? Okay? Because this is going to be, it's actually going to, it's going to make you feel better, I think. Now, one of the difficulties in talking about God is that the Bible uses a lot of metaphors for God. Put it to you this way. The church fathers, and I'm talking about the dudes that were right after Paul and John in the year 100, 200, 300. Now I'm gonna, I, I like to read their stuff sometimes because I just assume that they probably know more about God than I do. I just assume. So I, so I like to hear what they have to say. And here's what they say. They say that God is not a man, a rock, a fortress. He's not a tower or a husband or a father or a mother or a warrior or a charioteer or a farmer or a sleeper. Yet the Bible uses all these metaphors to talk about God. He's not any of those things, is he? But we talk about him in those ways. And here's what they say. And they say that the wrath of God does not mean that God is just getting ticked off all of a sudden and having a temper tantrum any more than the Bible says that God is sleeping. Because when you're talking about God, you, we, we can only talk about him in human terms that we understand to make sense of him. So what they actually say, and, and I quote, they would, the church fathers would say that in one sense, the wrath of God is a biblical metaphor that describes the very real consequences of going through life against the grain of love. And what he's saying is that the wrath of God is not so much revealed in the fact that, okay, these people are over here sinning, and he just gets ticked off, boom, thunderbolt. Now, that's what we think about the wrath of God and what it is. But here's what I want to tell you, that if that's how the wrath of God was being revealed currently, we would see a lot more people getting thunderbolted. Man. Because that's just not how it's revealed. He's saying... That the, they're saying that the wrath of God is a metaphor that we use and we understand it in human terms because we know you can look at a father, for example, and when a child does something that is wrong, that is detrimental, that is harming to them, all of a sudden you see the wrath come out in the father. What is it for? It's to protect them. 
But it's a metaphor for the fact that when we choose to go against God, he lets us go. And let me tell you something. Just because the wrath of God may, may or may not be a metaphor does not mean that the consequences of sin are any less. They are destructive. They are harmful. It will bring you into a place where you are depressed. This is why, like, 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 like Forrest said earlier, the suicide rates are higher than they've ever been. Why? Because people have turned away from God. And God lifted his hands and let him go. God loves you so much that he will allow you to do what you choose to do. And that's a scary thing. Because when we choose to do what we want to do apart from God, man, bad things happen and we wonder why we're in this condition. And terrible things happen and then we say, God, why'd you let this happen? And he says, I've been calling out to you this whole time. I've been wanting you to come up under my love this whole time. And you, you rejected me. You put me out of your mind. You chose to, to not acknowledge me any longer. And you pushed me out. And now you're experiencing the real consequences of sin. And here's something else that I want you to understand. Is that God's single disposition toward you and every person in this world, regardless of who they are and what they've done, is the disposition of love. He loves them above all other things. And his love stands above all other things toward them. Now, in the beginning, see, God created. And when he created, God is love. And we cre he created this universe to function and to be ordered in a particular way. And it says that the wrath is a real metaphor for us going against the grain of love. God is love. And when you go against the grain of love and you become a self-centered person who focuses on, only on their feelings, is, is a taker and not a giver, he says all of a sudden you begin to experience the wrath of God because you're going against the grain of love. You, you start to suffer the consequences of your own, the, your own shards of self-inflicted punishment. Now, let, let, let me get into this. I want to give you four quick things you can say about the wrath of God. You can put it in your notes. God's wrath is divine consent to our self-destructive rebellion against God. God's wrath is divine consent to our self-destructive rebellion against God. In other words, when you, when you commit sin... It's not that God is like, uh-oh, they committed sin. Let me punish them. Boom. And he brings something out against you. No, when you commit sin, because you choose it and you don't turn to God in repentance, he allows you to go into it. He lifts his hand off of you and says, I'll give you over to your choices. And he consents to you ultimately destroying your own self. But see, he loves us so much that he calls us back away from that. Let me put it to you this way. The wages of sin is death and sin is is moving in a direction contrary to, to, to love. Sin is punishment in itself. God doesn't have to punish you so much. You know why? Because sin is already punishing you. Does that make sense? Y'all with me this morning? We are punished by our sins more than we are punished for our sins right now. Let me give you the second part. God's wrath flows from the love of the Father. See, God is love. He is not wrath. But we have to talk about the wrath of God because it's real. But His wrath flows from His love because you can't say, well, you know, God is love, but He's also wrath. No, you don't say that. God is not wrath. God is love, and His wrath is one dimension of His love. The same way that a father loves his children, out of that love there are times that wrath must come out. And we, we, I, I, like to, I like to mention all the time, you know, like, like the time, for example, that, that, that Ivory is standing up on the kitchen table with a knife in her hand. Well, you know, you have to act aggressively toward that. You can't just say, oh, don't say nothing. She's holding a knife. I know she's two or three years old, but she's holding a knife. We love her. We don't try to challenge any of that. Yeah, we just, we just try to let her do what she wants. What? Well, you know, she's over, here, she's over here drinking Drano out from under the sink. Well, well, you know, we love her. Don't challenge her. Let her do what she wants to do. That's what love is. That's not love. Love is never allowing you to destroy yourself. And it's difficult for our generation to understand this because, because when, you, when love is redefined now and you say, well, this is right for me. But what I'm telling you is when you get down to the heart of a person, they know that they're miserable. They know that they're blind. They know that they're depressed and they're in need of something and they're desperately seeking this true love that only comes from God. And that is why they have went head deep, headlong into sexual immorality and all kinds of other ungodly things because they are trying to fill a hole of love that only God can fill. And that's what he's bringing them to. See, God's wrath flows from the love of the Father. 
And God's nature is, is we can't really go to one side or the other. We say that God is love, but what, what that ends up being is, is that God becomes careless. And in the end, we end up believing, honestly, there's a, people believe in universalism nowadays. And what they, what they believe is, is that in the end, ultimately, everybody's going to be saved. It's kind of like everybody's going to come before judgment, and God's just going to be like, Psh, I love y'all so much. Just come on in. I, I, forgive, I forgive you for, for, for involving yourself in the sex slave traffic industry. I forgive you for murdering hundreds of thousands of people and children, living in sexual immorality and, 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 and causing people to, to live in, in torment and, and, and addicting people to drugs and, and living. I just come on in, it's all right. Wouldn't that be weird? I would be at judgment now, I'd be like, man, something is wrong here. Would, would you not? I mean, we all feel it. When we think about somebody like Hitler, we're like, oh, man, that guy needs to go to hell. I can't wait to judgment day. I mean, he's going to get But when we, th- we feel that. We feel that sense of justice. But then when it comes to our own personal stuff, well, we don't feel that sense of justice anymore. The wrath of God is good as, it's, as long as it's aimed at the people we hate. It's not that good, though, when we start to turn it on the inside and start to aim it at other people. So, and this is, this is why, number three, God's wrath has both a present and a future dimension. It's right now, but it's also to come. And so you say, well, Clay, tell me again, how do I see the wrath of God right now in the world? Because, because I preached a message on this probably two years ago about uh, where is God in evil and suffering and hurricanes. Because whenever a hurricane hits, somebody, some, some dude from some church is always going to come out and say, well, this is the wrath of God. And personally, I don't believe that. Because, because it's so arbitrary. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we see the wrath of the, the, God's, we see that creation is groaning and creation is, is messed up. And Jesus said these are signs of the times that when you see creation groaning, it's because not only has humanity, but the world is out of control. So God's wrath is being revealed in human condition and in human sin, but you see it in the world too because he's handed the world over and now you see hurricanes and crazy stuff happening, tornadoes tearing stuff apart. Why? Because he's even handed creation over. Why? Because we were in charge of creation. And so it's not arbitrary, but, but, but right now in this present, present time, the wrath of God is revealed by him giving us over to what we desire. But there's a future dimension to that. Now, let me read this because, because, again, his point is not to point some sinners out and, 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 and to say, well, those people are bad and make you all feel good this morning and say, well, man, I'm glad we're the good people. Here's what he says in chapter 2. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. You're inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? So his point being is, you can judge a homosexual if you'd like, but are you among those who are backbiters? Because they, the they come up in the same list, don't they? It's interesting. And then he says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Now, I love this because most preachers believe that it is the fear of God and the wrath of God that leads people to repentance. Like, if I can get up here and just scare you to death, maybe you'll come up and say a sinner's prayer. Like, if you just know the flames of hell are licking at your feet right now, you know what I'm saying? That you're just going to come up and say, oh, God, save me. That may be good for a moment, but it won't last because you will not serve a God that you're afraid of every day. And he says, it's not the wrath of God that leads you to repentance. It's the wrath of God that you begin to sense in yourself so that all of a sudden you say, man, this is not how I'm supposed to live. And then all of a sudden you turn. And when you turn, the goodness of God overwhelms you and it leads you to repentance. And you say, man, I thought God was mad at me. And then all of a sudden you find out, but he loves me. And he loves me in this condition. Man, what does that do? It leads me to repentance. But the problem is, is that people experience even the goodness of God and the love of God. And in verse 5 it says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, that means your unrepented heart, your unwillingness to turn, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render each one according to his deeds. 
So he's saying, look, nobody is going to be exempt from judgment. And he's saying right now people are already experiencing it because God is giving them over to their sins. But he says when he's calling those out of his love, saying come out of that darkness and come into light, and he's calling them into repentance, he says they get hardened and they choose, they have an impenitent and unrepentant heart. And he says when they choose to not repent over and over again, they're actually storing up this wrath. And they start seeing more of it come to pass in their life. And, and what I actually see is people become more hardened and they lock themselves out. C.S. Lewis actually said that when people are in such a state of being that really when it comes to hell, they could be presented with heaven and reject it. The point being is you can get into such a state of mind and state of heart. He's saying people are going to hell not because God desires to send them there, but people are going to hell because they allow themselves to get into such a condition in their heart that even if they saw heaven, they would turn away from it because right now they're living their lives as if they don't want it right now. Does that make sense? It's more a state of being than it is a place that you live forever. It is a place that you live forever. Heaven and hell are real. Never get it twisted. But Jesus says that right now you're getting a foretaste of heaven. You're tasting parts of it in your life right now. And in the same way, when you go in the direction against God, you get a foretaste of hell. And it's already at work in you. And hell is really eternally locking yourself out from God and turning inward. And they use the metaphor of eternal fire to explain that. You say, well, is hell a metaphor? No, it ain't no daggone metaphor. Fire, it's worse than fire. It's a state of being that you wish you would burn up. And people are already experiencing it. You say, well, Clay, I thought you weren't trying to scare us. This is just the reality that we're at. And so he says, look, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Now, now here's where it's going to start to get a little bit better. Can y'all give me about 10 more minutes? Y'all with me for 10 more? All right, praise the Lord. Number four, my last point, Jesus saves us from God's wrath. Jesus saves us from God's wrath. Now, in Romans chapter 5, once you've come through the salvation that is in Jesus Christ after he's demonstrated that all people are up under this, but ultimately Jesus still offers salvation to all of us. In Romans 5 verse 8 and 9, if you put that up there, it says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. So, it's, so he's saying, look, here's how God's going to demonstrate his love. He says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means that you can think of the most reprehensible thing you've ever done, and while you were doing that, Christ says, I'll die for them. That's how much I love them. I'll, I'll go in their place, I'll die for them. And then he says, next verse, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And let's look at another verse, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. It says, in this is love. In this is love. Not that we loved God, because you and I, we didn't love God. You just got to be honest with that. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is kind of a crazy word that a lot of people don't have any idea what it is. But basically, it's this idea. It's that all the wrath and all the punishment that we deserved was coming at us as fast as it could come and was going to pin us to the wall and judge us and give us what we deserved, which is eternal death and separation from God. And Jesus stepped in, not deserving any punishment, not deserving any death because he was perfect and pure and holy. And just as it was about to hit me right in the face, he stepped in and said, no, nah, I'm going to take that. That's how he demonstrates his love toward you. See, it's not that God... See, see if, you, if, you, if you start to read the scriptures, what does the Bible say? John 3, 16, everybody knows it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, it does not say for God was so angry at the world that he gave his only begotten son and beat the tar out of him. That's not what it says. It says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die in our place, to experience the fullness of that wrath, to experience the fullness of that sinful humanity and our brokenness. It says in Roman 8, Romans 8, it says, it says, For God who did not spare his only son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? That word where it says he freely gave him up or delivered him up for us all, it is the same exact Greek word as when he gave them up 
He gave them over. He gave them up. So what was happening in, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying, Lord, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will to be done. He's saying, Lord, take from me this weight of sin that you are now laying upon my shoulders and take from me the wrath that I'm experiencing in humanity. Because in that moment, he was experiencing your suffering, your pain, your rejection, your feeling of distance away from God. And it was so heavy on him that he sweat great drops of blood. And in that moment in the garden, listen, they had tried to arrest Jesus. They had tried to kill him so many times, and they could not touch him. He would pass through crowds when they were trying to kill him, and they'd be like, where'd he go? And then all of a sudden, in a moment of time in the garden, what happened? God released his wrath on Jesus, and what did he do? He handed him over. And they could arrest him, and they took him in. And all of a sudden, he entered into the apex of human sinfulness, which is the murder of God. You can think whatever kind of sins you want to think are the worst, but there's nothing worse than when humanity took the Son of God and began to beat him and spit on him and mock him and nail him to a tree on that cross. And in the midst of that, while we were at the worst of the worst of the worst, where we are at our, the extreme worst of what we could be, in the midst of that, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And he says, this is how the love of God is revealed, that all of the wrath of God, listen, all of the wrath of God, every punishment that God ever could have or would have brought upon you, Jesus and God in himself said, I love them so much, son, that I want you to go and I will be in you and we will receive the justice and the punishment. It's where the love and justice of God meets. And that means this is what I love so much about God is he knows all of the wickedness in my heart. He knows all of the sinfulness that I've done. He knows all of those things. He sees it all, but yet he says, I would rather take all of that punishment on myself so that you can go free. That's an amazing thing. He says, this is how God's love is revealed. And at the same time, it makes God just, but it also makes him love. And at the center of all of it is love. But his wrath remains a real reality. Now, I'm, I'm going to close, and you guys can begin to come to the music because I'm going to close. And I, I just want to finish with a story out of Luke chapter 15. Now, most people know the story. You know the story of the prodigal son. Because here's what I want you to understand, is what is the heart of Jesus toward people who find themselves in the list we read about in Romans, Romans 1? What's, what's Jesus' heart toward people that are in this? What's Jesus' heart toward people who are addicted to porn, toward people who are dealing with sexual immorality, toward people who are hateful, toward people who are extortioners and covetous and thieves? and backbiters and gossipers. What's his heart toward these people? And in Luke 15, he tells a, a parable that basically reveals both the wrath of God and the love of God. And he says, and, here, and here's what's interesting, is the whole theme of these three parables that he tells in Luke 15 is he ultimately is saying that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner that comes to repentance than 99 righteous. You want to know when they throw a party in heaven, when the people that we think can't come to God all of a sudden wake up to their condition and come to him, all of a sudden God breaks out and he begins to rejoice in heaven. He says, this is what it's like in heaven. This is, this is what it's like to throw a party in heaven when one sinner comes to repentance is better than 99 righteous people doing the right thing. And he points this out and he says, all the sinners and the tax collectors drew near to him. Now at that time, a sinner was not, we just think of everybody being a sinner. Well, everybody's a sinner. No, in that time, to be a sinner meant that you had lived a certain way or committed some kind of behavior that actually got you ostracized from being able to come and be involved in temple worship, period. You weren't even allowed to come to church. That's wild, ain't it? That's what a sinner was in those days. Somebody that wasn't allowed to come to church and they drew near to him. Jesus starts to tell a parable in Luke 15. He said, look, a certain man had a couple of sons. And one son, the younger son, said, Father, give me all of my possession. Give me my inheritance. And, 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 and essentially what he's saying is, you know what, Dad? Drop dead. I just want your money. That's what happened in Romans 1. That's what we wanted, wasn't it? We didn't want God. We didn't want our God, the, the love of the Father. We wanted the stuff he could give us. And we said, you know what, God, as far as we're concerned, we want you to be dead. We want to go the route that we want to go, and we want to do what we want to do. And he took all of his possessions, and it says there he wasted it all on prodigal living. And it says all of a sudden a great famine arose when he had spent all because there are people in our generation right now that they're spending everything they've got. They're spending their dignity. They're spending their value. They're spending their self-worth and everything. They are pouring it out, man. 
And all of a sudden, a famine arises in his, in his life, and a famine will arise in these people's lives. And it says that he joined himself to a citizen of that country because when people get in that kind of a condition, they feel so rejected, so abandoned, and so unloved that now they're searching for other people like them so at least they can have somebody to talk to about it. At least they can have somebody to, to, that can sympathize with who they are, and they be, build these little communities. He joined a citizen of that country. And while he joined a citizen of that country and he got connected to him, it says that he, fed, he sent him out into the, into the field to feed the pigs. Now, the pigs represent something that is unclean. It represents, at this point, the wrath of God being revealed because what happened to this young son? This young son said, Father, I don't want you in my life, and the wrath of God was revealed how the father said, Okay, son, go ahead. And he let him go in a direction against the father's love. And where did he end up? He ended up feeding swine, starving, hungry, with nothing to eat. He says he would have loved to eat what the pigs were eating. And all of a sudden, he gets to this point, and it says in a moment in the, in, the, in the parable, it says, and he came to himself. And I want you to understand that the wrath of God is redemptive in nature. God will allow people to go. And a lot of times we hear stories of people hitting rock bottom. But see, God allows people to go their own direction. And it's redemptive in nature because when you finally experience that pain and that emptiness to a degree, you come to yourself and you realize, man, this is, cannot be the way that I'm supposed to be living. And so you try to figure out how to get out of it. You say, you know what? i tell you what I'll do. I'll go back to my father and I'll tell him this. He was planning a speech. He was saying, I I'll tell him, Lord, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your hired servants. And so he gets up and he goes back home with his head down, realizing what he's experienced. Now he's, he's already experienced the wrath of God because here's what doesn't happen. When we think about the wrath of God, what we, what we would think would happen would be that he's coming home and the father sees him a great way off and is sitting there tapping his foot, matter and fire. He said, boy, somebody go get me a switch. I'm going to wear him out with that's what we would think the wrath of God is, wouldn't we? What I want to tell you is that the Father already knew that he had experienced the wrath of God. The Father already knew. Now, had he stayed there and chosen not to get up and come back, in the end, he would have experienced judgment. The point being is, the Father sees him a great way off, and I love what it says. It says, and he had compassion on and I'm telling you folks, as the church, you got to realize that no matter how far they've gone away, you've got to have the compassion of God on these people. He had compassion on him. And you know what the father does? The father says nothing. He takes off running in a sprint. He would have had to gird up his loins to, to run out here to his son. And it says that he falls on his neck and he begins to kiss him. Now he got pig slop all over him. He's been in filth. But the father begins to kiss him. He embraces him. And the son starts to say, Lord, Dad, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son because of the things I've done. Make me like one of your hired servants. And the father doesn't even acknowledge what he said because the father says he's always been a son. He never stopped being a son. And he was never separated from the love, not one day that he was gone. And the father turns to his servants and he says, Listen, go and get a ring and put it on his finger. Go and get a robe and put it on his back because my son... He says, put sandal on his feet because my son that was lost has returned home and he's now found. My son was dead and he is now alive. And he says, kill the fatted calf and throw a party because he, my son who was lost has come home. See, I'm telling you, the world is in this condition, but this is the heart of the Father. And the wrath of God is the, the evil that we're experiencing in this world right now. Now that doesn't separate the fact that yes, every dead body is going to come before the judgment of God but man that is not God's heart toward people his mercy triumphs over his judgment that's what the word of God says and he wants them to turn and that's why it's important that we stand for truth but we do it with compassion we do it with love and when you when you encounter people who have went through abortion or you encounter people who are struggling with homosexuality or any kind of sexual immorality or any kind of thing that just seems like it's just it's just beyond I'm telling you love those people the extra mile Go as far as you can to talk with them. And when you leave them, you know, find ways to share the love of God. Find ways to share the truth with them because it's no good if we only stand on truth and we never reach out to them. It's pointless. And he brings them in. And, he, and here's the one thing that we cannot become because once they throw the party, guess what? The older son's over there in the house. He said, boys, I hear some music. I hear some partying. What's going on here? And he began to get angry. 
Your job as a Christian is not to be angry at the sinners. It is not. I know we think it is sometimes. I know that we think, well, it's the wrath of God. It's a righteous indignation. Oh. I think when evil is, is, is at the world, we should have a holy kind of a... We do get angry at sin. But man, we, we love people. And I know there are, there, there are people who say, well, you know, it's cliche to say God, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. And even some people in our world today will say, well, God hates the sinner too. I'm just going to reject that statement behind the pulpit. Because I'm going to say God is love. And He created human beings. And He loves every last one of them. And when they are in sin, it's a difficult place to be in. But man, I'm just going to tell you, there's no way that I can say that He hates somebody else because I know where I was at. And I know where He brought me from. And I'm no better than anybody else out there doing anything you can name. And that's just the reality of it. And we can't become like the older brother that's mad because there are sinners in the world. We're not mad. We're full of the love of God. We're full of the compassion of God. And we see the wrath of God, man, and it's, and it's all throughout the world, but it's in the, it's in the brokenness of human hearts who are confused and don't know God. And, man, this is, this is where it's at. This is where it's at. I love, I love one one scripture, I'm going to close here, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. I've read some of the most difficult passages all day. I might as well read another. Amen. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Not everybody's going to go. He says, but do not be deceived, neither fornicators. And this word includes all sexual immorality outside of sex between a man and his wife in the covenant of marriage. That's what that word includes nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the best verse. And such were some of you. Man, I used to be in that list. Anybody amen me? I used to be in that list. He said, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. See, here's what we got to understand. Man, that's good. No, nobody. We read that verse today, man, and it becomes such a dreadful verse to read. I'm thinking this is the most reason to rejoice in the world. We were homosexuals. We were drunkards. We were fornicators and adulterers. We were all those things. But when you get a hold of God, He changes who you are. He changes who you are. He changes your heart. He makes you a different person. And I'm telling you, we cannot allow this gospel to be watered down to the point that people can no longer see the truth forever. Make it plain, but make His love bigger. Let the truth be known, but let His love and His mercy and His grace wash it all over. And say, I know you think that may be right, but I'm telling you, God can change your life. He can change the way you think about it. And here's the other thing. When you are dealing with people who are confused and don't know, give them some time. Listen, if they have to come in here and sit with us and go through a sermon like this, my Lord. I mean, most people, they're going to hear a sermon like this. They probably ain't going to come back. But, but we're willing to walk it out with anybody. Man, I don't care who you are and what you've been doing. I'm willing to walk it out with you. I will become your best friend. And over the course of two, three years, however long it takes, you can tell me, man, I'm still struggling. And I'll tell you, I'm going to stick it out with you. We're going to pray through this thing because God will set you free. God will bring deliverance into your life because he did it to me and such were some of us. Such were some of us, but now we're washed, now we're sanctified, now we're justified by the Spirit of God. Man, I love that this morning. You feel that this morning? Stand to your feet. And I'm telling you, let God this morning remind you of what he's done in your life. And this morning, I'm telling you, there are also people that this was a difficult message for you. Because maybe you, you're dealing with something that, that's, that's been difficult for you. But I'm telling you, repentance is a beautiful thing. It's not a scary thing. Repentance is a great thing because you are turning into the arms of a loving Father who is saying, please just come home. I don't care what you've done. I died on the cross for you. Please just come home. Turn from that. Realize that that's brokenness. Realize that that's not for your life. Turn and come home. 
And when you come home and you let him love on you and fix you up and clean you up, become the person that will reveal those that same love of the Father that says turn and come home. Man, this is challenging. It really is. But I believe, I believe that God is starting something not just in this church, but all over our nation, man. That, that will, as he's raising up Christians that have this understanding, that have this heart, that are willing to shine his lights in the darkness and stand for truth and reach out to those who nobody else is reaching out to because they've already been ostracized and pushed out and rejected. And, and look, we're not going to do it. We're not pushing them out and rejecting them, but neither are we just going to let everybody do whatever they want to do either. Now, it's not up to us to change them, but it is up to us to share the love of God and the truth of God with them. Amen. Look, let's pray together. Father, God, this is, this is such, I thank you for this word because it's difficult. You help me get through it. And I believe you're going to help our church get through it. But Holy Spirit, we ask you to move, God, not only on the hearts here, but outside of these walls, man. People that are dealing with all sorts of bondage and addiction and chains. And Lord, those people, every single one of them, no matter where they are at, you love them more than we could ever imagine. And just like such were some of us, they're in that condition now, but God, we're believing that you will draw them to a place of repentance. God, not by your wrath, but by your goodness, by your kindness, by your love, by your mercy, you will open their eyes to the truth, God, and you will begin to bring them into your presence and into your goodness, and they will see the arms of the Father open wide to them, letting them know, God, that